we are! It's the fourth chapter of The Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know why I started to sing Flash Gordon there for a second, but uh, we're here on the uh, <laughs> fourth episode of The Amazing Spider-Man Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. Eric Burnham here. Along with me is Ethan Colchamero. Sir, how's it going? It's going well, my friend. Thank you. And thank you to all the guys, gals, and non-binary pals listening to us today. We're happy that you're with us. And we're excited to close out the first installment of the Amazing Spider-Man duology. Absolutely. Now, here's the thing. This is only the second time either of us has watched this movie. So I'm going through my notes. I'm saying to Ethan, I, I wrote this down, but I don't remember it. Ethan, I don't remember it either. Oh, this is going to sound great when we do the analysis. Holy <laughs> cow. But there are some things that we do remember fondly from this last chapter. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Alrighty, like as if it was a Ninja Turtle movie, we open in the sewers. One hour, 33 minutes and six seconds into the film, if you're playing along at home. Kurt Connors is stewing over Peter Parker. He's not a happy lizard. He is having a conversation with himself, and by that I mean he's talking. And then his mouth stops moving and we hear this whispering voice of the lizard floating in the air. As you pointed out... That's a whole lot like what we got with Norman Osborn and the Green Goblin in the first Raimi film. Sadly, no mirror. No mirror. And I also believe that uh, a certain Dr. Octavius had uh, tentacles that were speaking to him as well. So I think we can officially say that Spider-Man villains who have voices in their head have become, uh, you know, a bit of a trope. Something that these films uh, tend to lean on a little bit. You know, it's funny. The one exception that there was was Venom. And that's the one you figured would that's the one who right is kind of known for speaking in uh, what would that be the third and fourth person something along those lines so the lizard he's uh, talking to himself he's coming up with the plan he's going to turn new york city into a city of lizards it's great let's put cold-blooded people in a city that has a winter right smart thinking works better when you're in florida dr connors he is going to use a MacGuffin invention that was mentioned earlier in the film that we didn't even talk about because it was telegraphing the end of the movie like no one's business when you saw this in the theater the first thing you thought was well i know how this is going to end <laughs> exactly it's yes. an aerosol spray device that seeds a, a large area with a vaccine an aerosol sprayed vaccine so that you can inoculate hundreds of thousands to millions of people quickly and effortlessly mm. I can't imagine why it was mothballed. No, there's not more than maybe four or five million red flags with that type of delivery system. But I almost fell while I was watching it. I was like, hmm, could you say that this would deliver a serum to a large number of people on the nose? <laughs> Because this go. thing just, I mean, it might have had a sticker that said foreshadowing on it. it. It was pretty blatant. It seriously was. That's why we didn't mention it earlier. So we wouldn't spoil you. Actually, <laughs> it was just so on the nose we forgot to mention it. That's embarrassing, but I'm going to cop to it now. The lizard's plan to turn people into reptiles that he can rule over is one from the comics. But again, it makes a lot more sense when he is uh, trying to enact this plan in a tropical environment <laughs> as opposed to New York City. No, he's going to do this, but first he has to take out the amazing... Spider-Man, Peter Parker. And where does he find a high school student in the middle of a weekday? He finds him at high school. So he's going to go and he's going to attack 
Peter Parker at school and he comes in through the sewers, through the bathroom, rips a toilet right out of the floor and is still wearing his lab coat, which I love that he has the lab coat. <laughs> he, he makes sure to get a fresh one so that he's not just the naked lizard. I mean, you're going to a, a school for goodness sake. You can't just show up with nothing over the top half of you at a high school. He's a thoughtful villain about to go murder a teenager. Yes. Well, I mean, it's the thoughtfulness that uh, the Welsh are known for. So it's Peter versus the lizard in the high school. And, uh, you know, the students are escaping with the monster running around. But there's Peter. He's in the costume. He is fighting away. Pretty typical good guy versus bad guy in an enclosed space type of scene. A bit that I enjoyed. They're in a science lab and the lizard stops to mix a bomb. So there's just this giant monster just sitting there pouring chemicals from one beaker into another. And it looks absolutely surreal and absurd. But I loved that. Agreed. I love I love the fact that he just can't resist that he's around chemicals. It's like, I got a science. I can't help myself. Even though I'm, I'm a giant six foot tall lizard, it's time for me to make a bomb to throw at this kid. You know what that means? That means that not only is he world's foremost herpetologist <laughs> and a geneticist, but he also <laughs> is a chemist. Guy's got to have a hobby. <laughs> yet, Josh, after a long I'm just, day African. What else does this guy do? Is he going to rip out a tarot deck and, and read the cards? Or I think he was on Top Chef at one point, too. Yeah. <laughs> See, well, I mean, you hobby. know, if you accidentally cut off a finger, it grows back. It's fine. We have one of the best Stan Lee cameos in this uh, school fight scene. I couldn't agree more. For a long time, uh, this was one of my favorites. It, it's it's top five. Top five Stan cameo. And he doesn't say a line. It's just a uh, Stanley is a librarian. He's got the big old uh, thick set of cans on the headphones. He's listening to some music. He's gathering materials in the foreground while Spider-Man and the lizard fight in the background. A table is just hurtling his way, but is stopped. Spider-Man webs it up before it can hit him. And then he just obliviously walks off. The crowd loved it as much as they should. As far as wordless cameos go, it was absolutely the best. We get a little bit more help from Gwen as Peter is fighting the lizard off. She comes and uh, swats him on the head with a trophy. Now that's something that is a, that's a trope that has whiskers on it as well. There's been a few of those in this film, but you know, it's nice. She's helping. Yeah. She's not, she's no, no damsel in distress. And really, I mean, you know, not like Peter was saving her in any regard. The lizard was there to, to take Peter out. So it's cool that, you know, she's not just standing by uh, idly or, you know, hightailing it out of there. She joins the fray. Peter does web up the lizard to keep him from attacking Gwen we get a little bit more quipping here, not as much as in the carjacking scene, but we do get, you know, a somebody's been a bad lizard <laughs> and um, some repartee with Gwen. OK, I'm going to I'm going to throw you out the window now, right. you know, a little fun stuff, but it felt spidey-ish. There we go. He is driven off. He goes back from whence he came into the sewers through the boys' bathroom. He grabbed another lab coat. Peter follows him into the sewers. Has his mask off for some reason. He's talking to Gwen on the phone. He needs an antidote. He needs there to be an antidote for the lizard. He uh, expects that it's at the Oscorp building where she interned. Can she go? And of course, she's right there. Absolutely. She can do it. Off she goes to the uh, lab where they keep the magical MacGuffin device that we were just talking about. So the lizard is going to be after that lab as well. Peter discovers this when he reaches that fancy sewer lair with the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And like I think about a dozen extra lab coats in case they get ruined in battle i'm trying to figure out why they fit him he, does, no, he goes pretty big yeah you're absolutely right he does and they, they're not snug those are some amazing lab coats but peter finds out the lizard's plan he's going to turn the entire city 
into lizards. Again, not thinking very far ahead. It has a winter. Lizards are cold-blooded. But uh, he's going to test his uh, plans out by uh, turning people on his way to Oscorp, which he does with a group of riot cops, which is kind of creepy. Definitely more Universal Monster-esque moment. Peter gets back to the surface. He's calling Gwen. He knows that the lizard's on the way. Gwen, you've got to get out of there. No, no, I can't get out of here. I have uh, this thing on a clock. It needs eight minutes, so I'm staying here until that's done. Lizard's on the way. Peter's worried. She hangs up on him. This is one of my favorite bits in the movie. We've talked about this already. He swears into the phone, delightfully self-censoring himself with Mother Hubbard. That felt more Peter Parker than a good chunk of his uh, emo tough guy stuff from the beginning of the movie. Agreed. Cops show up, though. They're already in the area because of the lizard attacking, attacking their own. They see Spider-Man. Spider-Man's wanted, so they go after him. He gets tased, man. And Captain Stacy is there to remove his mask and see the face of his daughter's boyfriend. I did want to say that that was a very well choreographed fight sequence with Peter and the riot cops. You can see he's a little bit more smooth than he was when he was fighting gaggles of street toughs. And the unmasking was done in a super dramatic fashion, too. When he's first unmasked, doesn't he figure out a way to sort of hide his face for a little bit? I just remember Leary's reaction as Stacy when he sees Peter's face and it's another moment in the film like when he revealed himself to Gwen that I didn't expect yeah it's funny because I mean this movie came out a couple years after Iron Man so we are post MCU at this point in the MCU sort of very famously didn't really put any effort or stock into the idea of secret identities so it was a little surprising how quickly this film decided to not really get any mileage out of that classic superhero trope you know the importance of, of hiding a secret identity secret identity is very 20th century concept and it's a lot harder to sell in the 21st century but it also conversely has more at stake in the 21st century one of the things that was really cool in the comics uh, which i know we're going to get into a little bit more was the idea that george stacy had figured it out peter i think was always kind of nervous about george stacy potentially knowing peter's secret identity so to not get any of that in this particular film was surprising and you know you could say maybe a missed opportunity he did keep the other cops from seeing who he was they wouldn't have known anyway george did know him he did tell him that his daughter was in danger and you gotta let me go deal with it because it's a lizard monster you guys aren't going to be able to handle this stacy uh is gonna let him go he's not a stupid guy he's not a bad guy he doesn't feel that peter is a bad guy when he knows who he is under the mask when he knows who spider-man is so he's gonna let him go and then one of the cops get a little overzealous and shoots him in the leg. That spider sense would have come in uh, very handy. It's a thigh wound there, and he has to get to Oscorp to fight an eight-foot-tall lizard man with a hole in the thigh. Yikes. It's a nice bit of ramping up that the other movies didn't quite do. Cutting back to the Oscorp laboratory, the lizard is there. He's after his invention. He knows Gwen is there. This is a minor thing, but it's something that I noticed right away. He's sniffing for Gwen, and he's doing it with an open mouth the way snakes and lizards smell i it was a nice uh, touch of verisimilitude agreed he's at oscorp he has the doodad the MacGuffin, to spread his lizard serum across the island of manhattan peter is wounded he's having tough time web swinging there at a convenient construction site where c thomas howell is there and c thomas howell from earlier in the film 
that's the one. He's there, and he's a crane operator, and he knows what he must do. He must call his compatriots to join him on the 15 <laughs> cranes that are spread across. I don't know which street that was supposed to be in Manhattan, but they were evenly spaced across the street on either side for a fantastically easy path for Peter to swing down on his way to Oscorp. And I absolutely hated that. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because seeing that moment in the film, and we had a similar uh, divergent reaction to the moment in the 2002 Spider-Man when all the New Yorkers throw various car trash at the Green Goblin to help Spidey out. As ham-fisted and cheeseball as it is, for whatever reason, it just works for me. I was really moved by it. It just kind of brought me back to, you know, Spider-Man being a very New York hero and and that the city loves him. It tied back to, you know, my favorite moment in the film, arguably the best moment in the film of when, you know, Peter saves the the young boy from his fear of of getting out of the dangling car. I can see there was an emotional payoff there, but it was too convenient and contrived for me to have all those cranes perfectly placed along the same street. Yeah, I don't know what kind of city planning is happening in Manhattan where they have cranes that are perpendicular to each other for miles and miles. And also, you know, as much as the emotional payoff worked for me, I still, you know, now seeing it for the second time, have no real idea how that helped Peter get to Oscorp any quicker than he already was going to. I don't know if they were trying to say that the injury he sustained from being shot in the leg somehow made it harder for him to swing on structures that are not cranes. I have no idea, but he did sell the injury well. You know, he was on the roof and he was limping and he was trying to run and you could feel the hero music uh, should have been swelling. Gwen does escape from the Oscorp building. Kurt recognizes her, doesn't see her as a threat doesn't care since she isn't really stopping him from getting his uh, MacGuffin. She gets down to the floor level and uh, sees her dad. I kind of like how uh, George revealed that he knew who uh, Spider-Man was. Your boyfriend is a man of many masks is a good line. Peter does get to Oscorp. Uh, George is not going to allow uh, him to fight this fight alone just because that's the type of character he is. Peter is fighting the lizard. It's a dizzying series of shots just because of the height. He's trying to make his way up to the tower on top of the skyscraper where the doodad has been placed to disable it and put the antidote in it to cure Kurt and anybody else who has already been affected by the lizard gas before then. And uh, we have finally a moment for the mechanical web shooters to be useful. They get broken. Yeah, I really appreciated that. One of the tropes of the Spider-Man comics is is that moment when he runs out of web fluid or he finds himself not having that advantage that the web shooters give him. And it was nice to finally see that. We got a mini taste of it in the Raimi films when he had performance issues with with his organic webs. This was really the first time we got that classic moment from the comics of, oh no, I'm out of web fluid. Well, the lizard captured him and squeezed them shut, and you saw the web erupting out of the broken web shooter. The crunch of device against his wrists, it, it seemed painful. He already had a shot in the leg. It was, uh, you know, piling on to Spider-Man, which is a very Spider-Man type of thing to happen. Things just going from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse, and 
even worse than that in rapid succession. It felt right, and it also felt nice to have Captain Stacy there because Spider-Man really did need a hand. Whether or not George 100% is on board now, he, he does care enough about Peter that he's going to join that fight and you know help him try to survive this night. Although I'm, I'm sure in a lot of ways he's also there to help Gwen. Well, of course he is, and it's a great hero entrance for him. The lizard saying to Spider-Man, you're all alone. He's not alone! In comes Dennis Leary to save the day. The one-man good cop uh, shooting at the lizard, knocking him into the air conditioning unit, slowing him down, giving Peter a chance to get up there and swap out the uh, chemical canister in the MacGuffin doodad on the top of the tower. And it becomes even more dizzying when you realize if he falls, he's screwed. No webs. High up, bum leg, and the lizard gets past Captain Stacy by stabbing him through the chest. A very uh, bullseye and electrotype moment. Yeah, claws go right through the back. He goes after Peter. He's scrambling up the tower. Very nerve-wracking, very, you know, ticking time bomb. And then the chemical switches and sprays and... Kurt Connors and everybody else who was transformed is cured. And Peter falls. He falls down the building and he is saved by Kurt Connors. A nice way to show that the lizard had been purged from his system. He grasps him before he falls off the building and he's sitting up there, a naked savior, who goes to jail. I liked that this was the first movie where the bad guy goes to jail. He's not killed. He is not on the loose like the Sandman was in Spider-Man 3. He is captured. Yeah, I appreciated that as well with a lot of the major villains of, of any superhero story. There's so much you can do with these characters and certain movies even just in subtle ways really benefited the way you know we saw Scarecrow in all three of the Nolan Batman films or the way Magneto was a presence in all of the major X-Men movies unfortunately the amazing franchise didn't really get a chance to capitalize on that they were setting up the Sinister Six in the background as a thing that we were going to hopefully see not killing the lizard was an important part of that I just had hoped that he would have been someone that Peter would have gone to for advice in a second film they didn't do that either Cap Captain Stacy does hang on long enough to tell Peter that he understands what he's doing, but he wants him to leave Gwen out of it. He doesn't want her helping on his adventures. He doesn't want her dragged into a dangerous life, and he makes Peter promise to leave her out of it, and then he dies before Peter can say anything. It's a powerful moment. It is a powerful moment. It has all the impact that the filmmakers intended. At the same time, I was really starting to get we-can't-be-together fatigue. I mean, it just seemed at that point like almost every superhero movie especially the Spider-Man films, were always sort of ginning up a reason that Spider-Man meant that he couldn't be with the girl of his dreams. Uh, That wasn't really something that he was super concerned with in the comics. It just seemed like a trope that was also starting to grow whiskers, and it would have been refreshing to maybe go a different way with it. Which is why they flipped the script, but we're not there yet. I think it's interesting to note that Peter technically lost four father figures in one film. Yeah. He lost his uh, father. He lost Uncle Ben. Uh, Kurt Connors and Captain Stacy were both technically not father figures, but they were very close stand-ins. The scientist, like his father, the partner of his father, brought him closer to his father. That was Kurt Connors. Kind of a blue-collar, upstanding, moral individual like Uncle Ben. That was Captain Stacy. So he lost father figures left, right, and sideways in this film. And it's got to be some kind of a record. I think so. Captain Stacy, very famously in the Marvel comics was very much a a father figure because they had so much more time to develop that relationship. I think the filmmakers did a really good job of creating a character whose death had a big impact on Peter. With the amount of screen time that Leary had or didn't have, such as the case may be, they did a heck of a job Mm -hmm. and he really acted the hell out of it. 
Peter does return home. This time he remembers to bring Aunt May her eggs. In the backpack again, though, right? He didn't open the carton, so I'm just hoping that they all made it back in one piece. You know, hopefully they have breakfast tomorrow. That's my main concern. We do get another funeral scene for Captain Stacy. It is another funeral with rain and umbrellas. We saw that twice in the Raimi franchise. And Peter does not show up to the funeral, which is rough because even Flash Thompson showed up for the funeral. There needed to be a scene where, you know, we just see the ghost of Captain Stacy saying, I said stay away from Gwen. I didn't say don't go to my funeral. In fact, he didn't even say to stay away from Gwen. He just said don't right. put her in danger, <laughs> right. which is a fairly uh, reasonable request from a dying man. Don't put my daughter in danger. You don't have to stop dating her. You don't have to right. stop seeing her. You can come to my funeral. You you can go out, you can see a movie, you can have dinner, just don't do the Spider-Man stuff with her. But Peter does not show up to, to the funeral. He sees Gwen at school and she's irritated with him. Flash is wearing a Spider-Man shirt, though. He's a big fan of Spider-Man. Nice touch in the comics. And in a weird way, this might be the most comics-accurate Flash that we've gotten so far. Except I don't think he was ever quite as cruel as the Flash in the beginning of this film. It gave True. him a nice arc. He was humanized over the course of it, but I don't think he needed to be so incredibly, you know, kicking a person when they're down cruel at the beginning of the film in order to make that work. Gwen does show up at Peter Parker's porch to say, what, what's going on? Why were you not there? What the heck? Fair question. Fair question. And Peter just can't do, he just, bad, 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 you know, uh, he, he just tries to break up with her. Gwen is not stupid. She knows her father and she says, he, he made you promise, didn't he? Peter couldn't even say, well, you know, he did. It's your old man's fault. I'm sorry. What can we do? Nothing to be done here. Have a great senior year. No. So she got mad and, and she left and you hear Aunt May in the background. Well, who was that? That was a pretty girl rubbing his face in it in the same way that Uncle Ben did. Although, you know, it would have been nice to, you know, maybe have Aunt May just yell out. He's got pictures of you on his <laughs> computer but she does tell him he's arguing why he shouldn't be with this girl that he clearly likes and she gives him the boost you know if there's one thing that you are it's good which is a nice tie back to his father in the opening scene be good peter at this point does listen to the voicemail that ben left him that he started to listen to after ben was killed he listens to the entirety of the voicemail and it is a moment that works beautifully in this film uh, Peter does see Gwen again in class. He sits behind her. The teacher says, hey, you were late again. I promise I won't do it again. Hey, don't make promises you can't keep, Mr. Parker. He leans into Gwen and said, but those are the best kind. Oh, my goodness. Uh. It, it was a groaner of a line, but Gwen smiled. She knows what it meant. He's not going to honor her father's literal dying wish. Right. And she's happy about that, which I'm kind of torn on that just a little bit because obviously she's happy because she gets to continue to see the boy that she loves. But on the other hand, the way it was set up with her father and she knows that that was his last request. <laughs> so uncomfy. It, it really is. I mean, the, why even set that up as potential, you know, obstacle? Uh, in their romance if you're only going to have it be an obstacle for 92 seconds. I suggest... And that it is exactly what you were talking about before. It's such a trope where the hero is, I can't be with her because of who I am and it can never be because you will be in danger and they decided to flip the script and this is the way they decided to do that by setting it up in such a way that the audience would go oh well there's no way that Peter Parker being Peter Parker would ever deny Captain Stacy's dying wish. He wouldn't put Gwen in danger and in the last scene, I'm going to be selfish ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, and the audience, half of them are going, oh god man this is a bad idea and 
and the other half are going, ooh, yay, I shipped this. I'm sure you're right. Uh, it's just a little, I guess, uncomfortable to see the glee in which they flout uh, a dead man's dying wish, especially while we're still sort of recovering from the weight of that you know, death scene. But also, this was a Peter Parker who, as we've said a lot in these last three or four episodes, crossed a lot of boundaries. We close on the biggest one ever, which is uh, I'm not going to uh, honor my dead mentor's wish. Is this the kind of thing that they felt was realistic to teenagers as opposed to the Raimi trilogy, which was everybody was so heightened in reality. It was like they weren't real people. You know, maybe that's what it was. I I was kind of grossed out by it just a little bit. At least we did end with an elaborate web swinging scene through the city and then fade out credits and rock music and the promise of the amazing Spider-Man 2. We also get, because we are now in a post-MCU world, our first Spider-Man post-credit sequence. So we cut to Kurt Connors, who's in some sort of supermax prison now and we see a shadowy figure there's lightning strikes because it's still raining because there was a funeral it always rains during a spider-man funeral and this silhouetted faceless person with a super creepy voice says hello doctor did you tell the boy tell him what says kurt connors did you tell the boy the truth about his father and kurt says no the creepy silhouette says Well, that's very good, so we'll leave him be for now. And Dr. Connor screams, you should leave him alone. But the shadowy person has disappeared, a la Batman in the middle of a conversation. Dr. Connors is is left uh, to stew uh, in, in prison by himself. Interesting to see that Kurt Connors is very much on Peter's side now and, and doesn't harbor any resentment towards him or or feelings of revenge we get the impression he's a little bit more protective of peter well yeah and there you go that's the kurt connors that you were looking for for the entire movie but i still hate that they added the conspiracy theory stuff i hate that i hate that i hate that that ladies and gentlemen is the amazing spider-man but we're not done we're still got a little bit more to talk about the movie in just a second we are going to go through and give an overview back in a second Okay, so The Amazing Spider-Man, the overview, we've already gone through the four chapters of this two-hour-plus film, but let's talk about it in the macro sense for just a moment. What did you think overall, your thoughts of the film on the whole? We've both mentioned that this is the first time we've seen the film uh, since it was in the theaters, uh, and we're both super fans of Spider-Man. This is... You know, we're, we're on the same page in terms of this being our, our favorite character, uh, without a doubt. And this is both a movie that, that we've seen one time and haven't watched since. And I'll only speak for myself and say people have to work pretty hard to make a Spider-Man movie that I'll only watch once. So... I was not thrilled by it. I was not a huge fan at the time. I do have to say, though, that I think on a second viewing, it aged better than I remembered. I wasn't thrilled with Peter, you know, crossing so many boundaries. I wasn't thrilled with the new interpretation of the origin. The lizard is my favorite villain, and they didn't quite bring to his characterization the things that make him my favorite villain. So there were things I absolutely liked. It was definitely a mixed bag for me overall. You know, again, like we've mentioned, this is we're in post MCU world when this movie came out. So there's a high bar in terms of really delivering on what makes a particular hero special. To sort of get halfway there doesn't 
cut it uh, at this stage of the game. You know, I'm glad I rewatched it for the podcast and I did find new things to like about it. Ultimately, it's not going to make my list of favorite Spidey adaptations. I like how you said that they have to work hard to make a Spider-Man movie that you will only watch once. And they did it twice. (laughs) Yeah. You are correct, sir. Um, I I enjoyed uh, many parts of it. As you said, I hadn't watched it uh, but once myself, so I found myself enjoying it more than I remembered. But the stuff that sat wrong, the conspiracy theory stuff with his parents, eh, it really just felt wrong. And then everything that uh, they changed to mesh better with that, uh, in this case, Kurt Connors, to fit in with the conspiracy theory, it didn't do it for me. I really didn't enjoy that. I liked the quipping. I liked him as Spider-Man. I liked him less as Peter Parker. Agreed. I loved Ben and May. Also agreed. If we're talking about things that the movie has going for it, Ben and May are absolutely at the top of that list, along with Gwen. Everybody who was family had good chemistry together. The Stacys had good chemistry. The Parkers had good chemistry. Uh, Peter and Gwen had good chemistry. I think the problem is, as I just said, Peter didn't always feel like Peter. It's just not the Peter that we expect. If I'm going to put a final note on my feelings on this film, the movie works so hard to find points of differentiation from the Raimi trilogy, but a lot of choices that they made just really point out why maybe rebooting was wasn't the way to go. Well, they wanted to put Spider-Man back in high school because that's something that they love. It's something that makes him unique. Fair enough. I think the casting was fine. I think putting him back in high school, that kind of rebooting was fine. I just didn't like some of the bells and whistles. I don't fault them for the solutions that they came up with to the problem that they were presented with. But what was your, uh, outside of the rescue on the bridge, what was the one moment that will stick with you from this movie? I do have to really give credit to the practical effects, both in the fight scenes and especially in the swinging throughout all of the Spider-Man films some of the most breathtaking web swinging happens uh, in the amazing films and that is something that you know definitely deserves due credit I think I'm going to remember most Kurt Connors expensive sewer layer and all the equipment <laughs> that somehow got lugged and not stolen by a sanitation worker the thing that will stand out for me outside of the sewer layer is how each of the different iterations of the franchise has focused on one facet of Peter Parker's character as opposed to to the blended character that we see in the comics. The earnestness that Tobey Maguire brought, the kind of uh, dickish temperamentalness is what Andrew Garfield got. And then we got kind of, a, you know, an innocence and a good-naturedness for Tom Holland. Now, mush all those three together and you get the Peter Parker of the comics. But they just didn't do that in the movies. They separated it out and laser-focused on this is how this Peter Parker is going to be. Well, he's only like that like 10% of the time in the comics. <laughs> this is not the comics. This is the movie and this is what we're going to be. So it kind of felt like half a character in some places. That'll stick out to me. The lizard's lair and the conspiracy theory, those are the things that I'll probably think of over and above the fun of the chemistry. Yes, the conspiracy theory is it was definitely a, a misstep. I want to throw this out to you and uh, put it into your imagination, the theater in your head. Kurt Connors at the end, the after credit sequence, the shadowy figure come to visit him to talk about the conspiracies and the crazy stuff from the past with the Parkers. Imagine if it had been Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Seriously, now imagine if they had actually worked out a deal and pulled shield in how would that have 
made the movie uh, different in the eyes of audiences? For a long time, people have been wanting Spider-Man to be connected to the Marvel Studio film. Spidey really is sort of the ambassador of the Marvel Universe. He works so well with any other Marvel character. So I'm sure that that would have maybe made the conspiracy stuff a little more interesting or would have gotten people's interest peaked a little bit more. But I also don't know ultimately even uh, the MCU and S.H.I.E.L.D. and Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury could really give us much of a payoff from that whole thread. Taking in a different direction, do you think that Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man would have been a better fit for the MCU than Tom Holland? Hmm. It would have been nice to see what a little bit more of an older Peter Parker in the MCU could have brought us. I don't know if I would have liked it better, but man, that chemistry that Andrew Garfield seems to have with most all of his co-stars, that would be super cool to see what he would bring to a scene with, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark or or Captain America or any number of characters. Just based on the behavior that he had in the in these two films, I think they probably would have hated him. Just been more irritated with him. He's not as eager to please. I think that probably uh, Happy Hogan, if not uh, Tony Stark, would have lost patience with him quickly. <laughs> Yeah, it probably would have been a little more reminiscent of the uh, immediate friction that Tony had with Doctor Strange. Yes, I think that would have probably been it. But it would have been an interesting thing to see. Not just the age difference, personality difference, because as we said, Garfield's Spider-Man and Peter Parker were wholly different than McGuire's or Tom Holland's. It's just fun to play What If because they did toy around a little bit with merging the two. Right, I remember hearing that Joss Whedon had written a scene for Andrew Garfield in Age of Ultron and in the hopes that the negotiation were going to fly and ultimately they didn't. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, Amazing Spider-Man 2 contains a glimpse at uh, Avengers Tower. Something along those lines. I think that they were going to try to put him in, but they just dropped it at the at the very oh, okay. last minute. Um, it, there was plans to work either the Oscorp Tower or the Avengers Tower in one of the other movies or both as kind of a nod, but they just kind of never came together. You know, it is what it is. It's kind of what could have been. But uh, I think ultimately we wound up where we needed to wind up. Agreed. Alrighty, we have one more segment left. Talking comics, talking George Stacy in just a second. It's time for Comics Talk on the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast, The Amazing Spider-Man number 90, a super subtle title for this story, and death shall come. Classic Stanley titling there. But this was a really significant moment in comic. I mean, there was one that was even more significant coming a few years later, but this was something that did not happen in mainstream superhero comics. Of course, I think at that point, there were only mainstream superhero comics. There wasn't much of a indie comic scene, uh, at least in terms of superheroes, I should say. And so typically in the history of superhero comics, you could pretty much always guarantee that the hero and the people that really mean something to them were going to live to fight another day and thrill us another day and reassure us that good always triumphs over evil. And Stan Lee and his, you know, merry band of artists were ready to throw that convention out the window. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Now, we've got, right off the bat, Spider-Man fighting Dr. Octopus. He's got the flu, and it's not going well. He's just trying to get away. He escapes by page five. He is not doing well. And Captain Stacy finds him and says, man, you look terrible. We better get you home. So he brings him home. Peter recuperates at the Stacy household with Captain Stacy, you know, just being avuncular. But no, Peter realizing, you know, he's still got to get back after Doc Ock. This is only 20 pages. You know, it feels like they used to be longer. Right. But it's interesting. This is one of many times when George Stacy sort of hinted a little bit that perhaps he might have an inkling of what makes Peter special, you know, encouraging him to rest up at their place. He makes a little line about how uh, I I think Peter's going to be just fine. I've never known anyone with such amazing powers of recuperation. It's subtle enough, though, I suppose, that Peter's not really 100% sure if George is letting him know that he knows who Peter is. And he's thinking about that in the issue. He's wondered just how much he's really guessed about my secret. They don't come any sharper than that old gent, but he's never... (laughs) accused me. He's probably waiting till he has more proof, which I'm not about to give him. That was an interlude, and then Spider-Man feeling better, so he heads back out looking for Doc Ock. Some gorgeous uh, Gil Kane art with John Romita inks. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about a dream team right there. It doesn't get better than that. You know, every time I look at the way that Gil Kane and John Romita drew Captain Stacy, it just really brings to mind, uh, you know, what perfect casting James Cromwell was in Spider-Man 3. It's true. He was uh, perfect visual casting. Spider-Man did work up uh, something to uh, help him. It makes Doc Ock's arms go nuts and not listen to his commands. They attack him. I'm not entirely sure what the stuff was. It's funny. That's It's a good reminder of how often Peter used to do that in the comics. To just randomly invent gadgets that were geared towards thwarting his villain of the issue. And I think maybe with, with a minor exception in Far From Home, we've never really seen Spidey just invent something uh, off the fly in a movie the way he did uh, so often in the comic. And this also puts Peter in the responsibility category again. He caused Ock's arms to go nuts, which caused him to lash out, which caused him to break a chimney, which caused rubble to fall down on the street towards a little child who Captain Stacy shoves out of the way and he gets hit by all that rubble. A literal ton of bricks and Spidey you know, races down, you know, he's got to be alive. He grabs him, he runs him away, he's going to get him to the hospital and then we get the shocking scene right there last page he knows who he is he says after i'm gone there's no one to look after gwen no one peter except you he's talking to spider-man i can't imagine how that would have been to read off the shelves yeah i mean he calls him peter with the mask on and i think that line is really telling you he must be alive because i'm sure that is what every reader was thinking in that moment of oh he'll be fine you know just like every other superhero comic i've ever read you know he'll he'll be in the hospital in the next issue and an issue after that he'll be out running around again and uh, that that was not what was delivered by stan lee and gil kane and, and john rita not at all and this gives a great bit of melodrama because peter is literally responsible for captain stacy's death i'm sure he wouldn't see it that way peter of course is going to see it that way so now it's it's even said the last panel what will gwen do if she finds out that i'm responsible for her father's death some great soap opera there that era of Spider-Man comics is really defined by the melodramatic elements and and the soap opera. Just that feeling that that really changed comics, this feeling that like nobody's as safe as I thought they were. It's a double-edged sword because, you know, now, I mean, it seems like major characters die all the time and then they come back and it's just sort of a because comics type of thing. And that was, again, not a thing that happened and 
not something that anybody was prepared for or expecting. And you can kind of only be that shocking once, uh, although there, there were certainly bigger shocks to come. Uh, I think that kind of really opened the door for other things. And you can only be that shocking once. So then the next time you've got to be even more shocking. And where does it go from there? At least it all came out of the story. I will give it that. Now, right. we were talking about this because George Stacy was in The Amazing Spider-Man. He did figure prominently and he did die knowing a superhero was dating his daughter and basically dying in that hero's arms. Very different death scene from Amazing Spider-Man 90 to the Amazing Spider-Man film. And that's why we brought it up. You know, it, it is a seminal moment uh, in superhero comics all around. And I think also the filmmakers obviously were trying to approximate that scene in the climax of the Amazing Spider-Man film. I mean, they know that they don't have the benefit of years of goodwill towards this character. This is something where I feel like the filmmakers really did rise to the challenge. I mean, they wanted something that had a serious impact, but at the same time, they don't have years to, you know, make us really feel something for George Stacy. They have to do it quickly. And they did that with casting. They did that with chemistry. They really nailed it. They did, but it's just an interesting way to go from be good to her, protect her, she loves you very much too. Don't you dare involve her. I, I understand that the 70s had their own brand of cynicism. The late aughts have quite a bit of cynicism of their own that was maybe even more cynicism. And so that's where we got uh, Captain Stacy in this one. I do wish that they had gone a similar route in terms of protect Gwen, be there for her. You know, you have my blessing, that kind of thing to go with. Keep her out of your business, you know, and, and then 90 seconds later, be like, uh, lols, no, not going to do that. I, I think in some ways goes back on all of the mileage that they got from the way they showed the hero's death of Captain Stacy. Well, there you go. That's it. That is The Amazing Spider-Man done and dusted. We're going to move on to The Amazing Spider-Man 2 next. We're going to get to it. Electro and the Rhino both uh, popping up in Goblin. Amazing Spider-Man 2 and the Goblin. Harry Osborn, ladies and gentlemen, he's back without his snowboard. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, give us an email at cinemaspidey at mail.com. You can tweet to us at Webhead Podcast and also anchor.fm slash Webhead Podcast. You can leave us a voice message up to one minute long. Now, before I forget, we did get a voice message, but we spotted it as we were recording the show, so we didn't have time to uh, to work it in. We're going to work that in the first episode of Amazing Spider-Man 2. I can't wait for you to have the glee of introducing our first voice message on the uh, podcast here. It's a long time coming and I just could not be more more excited about it. Alrighty, that's it for another week, folks. Thanks for listening to us. Please share the show with all your friends. Yeah, please do tell your friends. And if you want to leave us a review, leave us a, you know, a rating on your podcast delivery system of choice, that helps us out so much. Please spread the word and share the fun. And we'll see you in another week.